You're listening to Meeting Pod, the podcast powered by Meeting Place, the premier magazine and news source for the meat and poultry processing industry, and Alt Meat Magazine, the only business information resource for the exploding alternative meat industry. Hi, I'm Julie Larson Brisher, Science and Technology Editor for Meeting Place Magazine. Welcome to this month's Meeting Pod episode dedicated to the meat alternatives market, where we're talking the future of meat and alt proteins with Jack A. Bobo, CEO of Futurity. Futurity is a food foresight company that explores emerging food trends and consumer behaviors in an ever more complex world to improve the health of people and the planet. Recognized by Scientific American in 2015 as one of the 100 most influential people in biotechnology, Jack is a global thought leader whose past has most definitely informed his future, thinking that is. He is an attorney with a scientific background, biology, chemistry, psychology, and environmental science, whose career bona fides include a 13-year stint as a senior advisor on global food policy with the U.S. Department of State. Jack also served as Chief Communications Officer and Senior Vice President for Global Policy and Government Affairs at the Biopharmaceutical Innovation Company in Trexon Corporation. At Futurity, Jack advises companies, foundations, and governments on a range of emerging food trends, including alternative proteins and the impact of genes on food and farming. He's delivered more than 500 speeches in 60 countries on topics ranging from the future of food and how to sustainably and nutritiously feed the world in 2050 to disruptive technologies and how to build trust in organizations and brands. Welcome to Meeting Pod, Jack. I'm delighted to have you as a guest on the podcast today to talk about the fast-growing alternatives meat market and its potential to transform the food sector. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's dive right in then. As we know, the World Economic Forum and other experts have forecast a global food shortage by 2050, as the world's population is estimated to reach nearly 10 billion. And some estimates say we'll need to, at minimum, double worldwide food production to ensure food security. So given this data on the need to feed people in 2050, that is taking this data at face value, how big a driver is this need in pushing forward the development of alternative meats? And how big a driver is it for conventional meat? producers and processors to improve their environmental footprints? Yeah, so between 50 and 100% more food, but in terms of protein, it's probably doubling. And so, you know, this is obviously an enormous challenge. Now, we're only adding about 2 billion people to the planet, but the people who are already here are also going to be improving their livelihood. And the first thing that people ask for is more protein in their diet. And so that's why the population is not growing as fast, but demand for protein is. And so this is going to be a challenge because we're already dealing with problems of water and deforestation and other things today. And if you have to produce twice as much, you really need to do that on the same footprint, if not a smaller footprint, than we're doing it today. And so this is really an opportunity, though, both for the alternative protein world as well as the, the livestock world. Because if you think about doubling protein, 
Well, that's like a $2 trillion opportunity because we have a $2 trillion market today. It could grow to $4 trillion. And so we often think of alternative protein as being in competition with animal protein. But the reality is that the alternative market can grow to be a $2 trillion opportunity and it wouldn't require the loss of a single head of cattle. And so it, it's not really as much of a competition as people think. It's really how much of the growing pie will be taken by animal protein versus alternative protein. Big potential. So the alternative proteins will certainly be growing, but the livestock industry needs to become more efficient and more productive over the same time, because if still producing as much, if not more, then we need to do it on a smaller footprint. And we have every reason to believe that that will occur. Because when you look at information from the World Resources Institute, they talk about, well, what will it take to get to a sustainable future? And they have a range of shifting diets, reducing food waste, innovation. But what people often miss is that 61% of the improvements in the system will come from the incumbents. That's the livestock producers and all agriculture and farming. And it's that other 39% that's going to come from shifting diets and alternative protein and other things. And so, you know, it really relies on everybody in the food system doing their part in order to get to that sustainable future. What do you think are two or three of the top trends in technology, innovation, and consumer behavior that are going to most affect the food sector and alt meats in particular? Well, you know, you can think about changes that are going to happen on the farm, those that are happening on the plate in terms of technologies. And so, you know, I think that, you know, we've only begun to scratch the surface of what plants can do, especially for the alternative protein world. You know, we're still looking at yellow pea and mung beans and isolates and things like that. And I think we need to get much more creative about what the plant world has to offer. And so in many ways, big data still needs to come along and analyze the plant genome and the plant world to tell us what amazing things plants could be doing that we're not currently asking them to do. So there's going to be a lot of innovation, you know, around plants. The second part though is in the plate itself, you know, how are we combining all of these different innovations in a way that creates the taste, the mouthfeel, the organoleptic properties of the alternative proteins that give the consumer that sort of mouthfeel and other things that they're expecting in order for these products to be successful. And so I'm pretty excited about things that are coming out of fermentation, mycelium and fungi and other things I think have a lot to offer in terms of structure that we haven't quite seen yet. And so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty exciting and diverse landscape. So it's hard to pick just one, because the reality is it, it takes an entire plate or an entire menu of technologies to make these successful. You know, we think of an impossible burger as being a product, but it's not. And it's a product that's changing almost every day as they tweak their recipe. And then in the final part, you, you asked about consumer behavior. And a lot of people talk about trends. I'm actually less interested in trends than I am the forces that shape the trends. Because if you're a company and you're trying to look at, well, what should I do next? And you go out there and you look at what are the top 10 trends of 2021? Well, by the time you bring a product to market, that's going to be 12 to 18 months. And we're going to be on to a new top 10 trends. 
right? So you're always going to be behind the, you know, what's happening. But if you ask the question, well, what are the forces that shape the trends? Well, that's how you get ahead of them. And so the trends I think that are particularly important aren't really going to be surprising. You know, you have health and wellness and you have sustainability. And now those are going to be the top forces next year and the year after and the year after that. And so when we think about things like oat milk, I don't think that oat milk is a force that's going to shape our entire food landscape. You know, it's a trend that was built on health and wellness and sustainability. And so companies don't have to really look around and copy what others are doing. They can say, well, if you can create, if somebody will buy oat milk, which is basically water, I could be innovative in my own way and bring a product to market if it's built on those forces of health, wellness, and sustainability. And so that's where I would start if I was an entrepreneur thinking about it. It wouldn't be so much, you know, what are the, what are other people doing, but what could I do that nobody else has yet thought of? Well, that kind of leads me into this next question about what elements of consumer psychology and behavior do alt meat makers and marketers misinterpret most often? You know, how do they get it wrong, in other words? And then what do they get right? Right. So I think the thing they get wrong the most is how to sort of communicate directly to the consumer. Because often the the people that start alternative protein companies, you know, many of them are vegetarian or vegans. And, you know, you sort of have this vegan mafia that's supporting them financially. And they're doing it because they believe morally and ethically in a future that has fewer animals for food. And that's fine. People should believe in what they do. But most consumers are not choosing these products for the moral and ethical reasons that they have. And so one of the things that I ask when I'm speaking at events is I ask, do you only want to sell your product to vegan dude, the guy who believes what you believe? Or do you want to sell your stuff to bacon gal, the person who philosophically doesn't believe anything that you do? And they all say, oh, we want bacon gal to to be buying our stuff. It's like, well, then why are you using this language of stop being evil and eat my product when that's just going to offend people who are perfectly fine with animal products? So what they're really doing is they're creating cognitive dissonance. They're trying to say, you know, why do you eat, you know, this animal and you, you know, you like puppies. And so they want them to sort of go through that philosophical question and then come to the conclusion that I was wrong before and I should stop doing that. And now I'm going to be vegan. But most people don't want to have that kind of moral and ethical conversation when they just want to have dinner. And what you force them to do, though, is if they agree with you, then maybe they start eating your product and they change their behavior. But if they disagree with you, well, they're not going to come to the conclusion that they're evil. They're just going to assume that you're a bad person yourself. And now you've not just created somebody who doesn't want your product. You know, that's sort of the yuck factor. You created an enemy somebody who's actually opposed to your success. And that's something no company should want to do, create an army of people who want them to fail. And so that's the danger of using cognitive dissonance. And you know, I think that's something that many of these companies do. In terms of you know, what they're doing right, well, you know, these products have a bit of a health halo associated with them because they're, they're coming from plants. And I think that it's important that they realize that they're kind of getting a pass in some ways for the ultra-processed nature of their products and even some of their ingredients 
because of that health halo. And so they need to make sure that over time, their products really do become healthier. Because if consumers are buying it because it's healthier and it's not, that's a risk to their future business model. And so they want to get there as quickly as possible to the point where they can say with a straight face, this is actually better for you. Right. Well, do you have any watch outs or advice for industry on how they can brand or communicate about their products better? Yeah, the thing that drives me the craziest when I hear is about how as soon as plant-based burgers become cheaper than traditional hamburger, the world is over. They will win and they'll drive traditional hamburger from the market. And that really reflects a lack of understanding of both economics and consumer psychology. In terms of consumer psychology, the language of cheapness is a terrible thing because if their product is cheap, well, that makes hamburger the premium product, traditional hamburger or beef-based hamburger. So what they're doing is they're really saying is the day they become cheaper than hamburger is the day that hamburger becomes the premium and they become the commodity. People who don't like commodity products are going to stop consuming their products. So the language they should be using is we produce quality products at affordable prices and they will become more affordable over time. It may sound like it's the same thing, but it conveys something very different. You always want to convey the language of quality. You never want to convey the language of cheapness. And so that's a big risk that they have. And then from an economic standpoint, you know, they need to remember that hamburger is a byproduct of steak. As long as there's the same amount of steak in the world, there will always be the same amount of hamburger in the world. And that's okay, though, because there are many parts of the world that need more animal protein. So if Americans consume 50% less animal hamburger in 2050, we still may produce the same amount of hamburger. It's just that it's going to go to other places around the world where they actually need that protein. And so that's not a lose for the alternative protein people. That's a win for the world. And so, again, you know, we, we need to recognize you're not trying to drive them out of business. You're trying to drive them to the places that need them most. And that doesn't necessarily hurt anybody in the business world. Right. Well, in the marketing messages that the alt meat makers and the conventional meat makers put out there, which do you think are the most effective and which do you think are wide of the mark? <laughs> I encourage organizations to try to elevate their products instead of trying to tear them down. So just to give you an example, when Perfect Day came out with their ice cream a couple of years ago, the dairy people had a couple of options of how they could respond to that. One, they could respond by saying it's unnatural, you know, it's not real ice cream. Or they could say something like, we were very interested to hear about this development. We believe that it validates the nutrition of dairy proteins. We believe consumers will continue to be interested in the full range of proteins in a glass of milk, and we feel like we're on trend with a wholly natural product. In other words, you can try to elevate your product, but you don't have to tear down the other product. And I think that's valuable advice for any company in it, in the system, that consumers, while they may respond to negative language, it actually undermines both brands. So while you can tear somebody else down, you're also kind of tearing yourself down too. And you're undermining consumer confidence in our entire food system, which ultimately isn't going to help anybody. Right. 
I know that you have a new book out, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices, The Invisible Influences That Guide Our Thinking. And I'm wondering, do you cover anything about alt meats in the new book? So it's really indirect. The first third of the book is really all about consumer psychology, the halo effect, decision fatigue. And so those are all lessons that are really helpful, I think, to anybody that's working in the food industry is to understand how do people come to think the way they think and make the decisions they do, and what does it take to actually shift behavior? Because the second part of the book is about how our behavior is shaping the food choices that we make. And ultimately, the last part of the book is about what would it take to reshape our food environment so that healthy outcomes are the default instead of us struggling to make better decisions and feeling like we're kind of all on our own. Can you give me an example? (laughs) Sure. So right now, if you were to talk to a dietitian about, you know, what can you do to shift the behavior in your home? You know, they might say, well, you can eat off of a smaller plate because the difference between a nine inch plate and a 12 inch, you know, you may be eating 40 or 50% more on the larger plate without really knowing it. The problem with this advice is that then you go out and you go to a restaurant And they're not even serving you on a 12 inch plate. You know, they may be serving you on, you know, an even bigger plate, 13 or 14 or 15 inches. One example, I was at the Cheesecake Factory for Father's Day a couple of years ago, and the plate was 15 inches wide and 12 inches deep. And I had gotten the steak, mashed potatoes and green beans. And I have to tell you, it looked like a small amount of food on that enormous plate. And in my mind, I was convinced I could eat it all, no problem, not even a big deal. But then I took out a nine-inch plate from my wife's purse, and I actually replated the food. And when I did, I realized it was two full meals for an adult, two full meals. And I could not tell because the plate size was just so big. And so if your brain thinks of this as being a normal plate size and this as being a normal portion... When you're trying to do that at home, it's very hard because your brain knows that that plate is too small or it thinks that plate is too small. So that's why we need to shift the environment, not just at the personal level, but at the societal level. And it's not to you know, denigrate the Cheesecake Factory for giving me big portions because people go back because they get big portions. But what if instead of giving me a 15-inch plate, at the beginning of the meal, they said, And would you like your to-go portion before you eat? In other words, I got half of it in a box to go and it never showed up on my plate. Now, all of a sudden, I can clean my plate and if I wanted a little more, I could get it, but I probably wouldn't. So here's the difference. Eating two meals for the price of one is not good value and it's not very healthy. On the other hand, getting two meals for the price of one that's a great deal. So how do we reshape you know, some of our thinking about what good value is? Overeating is not good value. It may feel like it in the moment, but we know two hours later that it was a terrible idea. Right. <laughs> and you're, that's a great example because one of the things that you hear most often is about plate size, especially when you're going on some sort of diet 
management or even a maintenance program. And nowadays, everybody's very concerned about their fitness, their health, their well-being, and nutrition is an important part of that. But it's really, it is difficult when you think, I'm very smart, I know all these rules, and you still make a bad choice, right? right? Well, it's because our brain is working against us. You know, if you eat half the food on your plate, you may feel like you're a smart person. But your brain thinks, I didn't finish my meal. So it doesn't actually kick in and start digesting the food and start increasing your energy to burn off the calories because it thinks you're not done. And so that's why two hours later, you still may be hungry because it feels like your brain thinks you didn't finish eating. It's better if you never see the food than even if you put it aside. And so you know, those are the kinds of things we're sort of struggling against. If you don't buy the snacks, you won't eat them. If you don't put them on the counter and you leave them in the cupboard, you're less likely to eat them. And so what little nudges can we make in our day-to-day life that it's not about denying ourselves choice. It's actually about increasing our choice. Because think about McDonald's. In 1955, a Coke was seven ounces. That was an adult serving of Coke. A small fry today is a large fry from 1972, right? So, you know, in a regular hamburger, was an adult serving? So we can't even imagine what an adult portion was like in 1950 or 60. On the other hand, if you did, though, get the kids happy meal and eat the hamburger, the fries, and of course, that's a 12-ounce Coke, not even a 7-ounce, well, then you could get the dessert, you know, which you probably don't get when you normally go to McDonald's. But you could have that dessert and you'd still have fewer calories than you have today. If you spent half an hour, 45 minutes eating that meal, instead of the 10 or 12 minutes you probably do, you might begin to feel, oh, you know, I've actually had enough food. You know, if we can spread that out over a little bit more time, there are things we can do to just nudge us to that better place. I'm a futurist and I always think about, well, what's the future that I want? And when I think about a healthy and nutritious future for people, it's not a future in which we're all taking a pill to not gain weight or we're taking a pill to lose weight. It's also not a world in which we're counting calories every single day. It's a world in which we lose one or two or three pounds a year every year for the next 30 years and somehow we're healthy and we don't even know how we got here. That's the world I want. (laughs) I'm with you, Jack. (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Meeting Pod today. And listeners, you can connect with Jack on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit his website, futurityfood.com, where you can read his blog, view selected video presentations, and find information on Futurity courses on topics ranging from alternative proteins to transparency to the future of food. That's F-U-T-U-R-I-T-Y food.com. Or check out Jack's latest book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices, The Invisible Influences That Guide Our Thinking, available from a number of booksellers in-store and online, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audiobooks, and my personal favorite out here in Portland, Oregon, Powell's City of Books. To subscribe to Altmeet Magazine and to our weekly Altmeet News newsletter, go to our website at altmeet.net. 
Thanks again, Jack. And I do know one thing that's going to happen in the future. I'll be sitting in the front row for your keynote presentation at the American Meat Science Association's Reciprocal Meat Conference in Reno next month. I'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for spending time with Meeting Pod today. Remember to tune in on Mondays and get the inside track on the people and processes that power the protein supply. Be sure to subscribe to Meeting Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Meeting Place and Altmate magazines on social media or visit our websites at meetingplace.com and alt-meet.net. <laughs>